Episode 136, Lady in the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty. Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> this is parts 15 and 16 of the Disney shows with Daniel Floyd of extra credits. First up, charming dog botherer, Lady and the Tramp. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a preview of the motion picture event soon to be seen in this theater. We would like to show you and tell you something about Walt Disney's Lady and the Tramp. It's his happiest motion picture, a story about dogs. Open your heart and build some glowing memories as Walt Disney takes you into that wonderful world you always hoped did exist and never knew for sure until now, the world of dogs. To anyone who's ever owned a dog, loved a dog, or just wanted a dog, this picture is yours, heart and soul. You'll meet Lady, the belle of the social set. She was beautiful, innocent, intelligent. And besides, she owned the nicest family in town. Lady was the catch of the season. That is, until the day that Tramp came into her life. Tramp, soldier of fortune, the Casanova from the wrong side of the tracks who wore no man's collar. It's what they do to your happy home. Move it over, will you, friend? You'll meet Jock, officially known as Heather Ladd of Glencairn, of the Blue Blood Glencairns, who collected blue ribbons, silver cups, and bones. <laughs> That's a grand sight. There's faithful Trusty, the bloodhound of the Old South, but now given to dreams of faded glories. And there are the rollicking, roistering boys in the back room down at the dog pound. Boris, remnant of the old aristocracy who has fallen on evil days. He's like Gorky says in Lower Depths, quote, miserable being must find more miserable being. Then, he's happy. Pedro, whose visa and luck ran out at the same time. And my sister, Rosita Chiquita Juanita Chihuahua. And Peg, slightly shopworn sabrette from the dog and pony follies, who knew many things. One of them, how to sell a song. If he's a tramp, he's a good one. And I wish that I could travel his way. Wish that I could travel his way. Wish that I could travel his way. And you'll meet Mr. Busy, the eager beaver. Six foot six in seven sixteenth inches. And the pair of mischievous Orientals, Cy and Am. We are Siamese, if you please. We are Siamese, if you don't please. It's Easter, it's Christmas, it's New Year's Eve. All the merry celebrations of your life rolled into one happy entertainment. As Lady and the Tramp, take you into their enchanted world. On that note, Lady and... On no note at all. Lady and the Tramp, 1955. 1955?! This surprised the hell out of me. Dan, you'll never guess what Lady and the Tramp reminded me of. Just suddenly out of nowhere, because I hadn't really done this thing or experienced this thing before when I saw it last. Uh, I actually do have no idea. What? It was a game set around 1909. 1912 in this case. Wait a minute. 
in America's golden age before. Right. Okay. <laughs> I've caught up. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Bioshock Infinite. I did not expect this to feel like that, but my God, when you watch Lady and the Tramp having done Bioshock Infinite, everything feels like it's just a set. And if you go behind the doors, it's going to be this, that the entirety of their town is going to be floating on the clouds. But in a good way, because it made it more evocative, because I've been, I've explored um, Colombia now. And uh, the the town is designed after uh, Walt's hometown when he was a boy of... uh, (laughs) Dan, you may know this one or like this one. Marceline, <laughs> the vampire queen. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a depiction of an idyllic American town just before everything really kind of took off for them. So it was after the, uh, um, the, the, the West was beginning to be tamed, just around the inception of the motor car. So you've still got people in pony and traps and uh, you've still got this sort of um, everyone's very naive uh, and it's it's very sort of middle class, sort of like, or, or I suppose upper middle class. Everyone's got good jobs before the Wall Street crash. It's pre-depression, and um, it's it's prior to all the problems that basically uh, beset the Disney studio before they managed to come through with uh, Snow White. Is this one of the first actual Disney direct American period pieces? Racking my brains here. Now, I suppose Dumbo is as well. Yeah, I suppose that one is. It is the first more or less original Disney feature story, though. Yeah, based on what they came up with. This was a point at which Walt did kind of reach that age where you just get a whole lot of nostalgia kind of for where you were yeah. and your upbringing. So mm-hmm. that, I think that is basically what has brought us to having a film here with this very idealized suburban America yeah. setting. But even so, I think it's the most beautiful looking Disney film yet up to this point. It is pretty like gorgeous. The, yeah. like, like the, it's a much more grounded setting. Obviously, it's not a big, crazy, fantastical... It's not Wonderland. It's not a fairy tale. But the art design is really spectacular. Everything's very, very grand and sumptuous. And it's made to look... Uh, because it's from a dog's eye view, and because it was their first... Notably, their first film in, like, CinemaScope, so the first proper widescreen uh, production... Uh, it, they make the most use of the fact that the dog's view is low, looking up, so everything looks sort of towering and immense. Not terrifying and imposing, but just big. And so you've got the... the, the, the it's, it's almost epic from the point of view of the dog. Yeah. They make a lot of really creative uses of light in their background paintings, too, that I noticed. Like, you will have a shot in which it's night and it's dark and raining, but there will be a, a, wind, a, a lit window that uh, we're kind of looking down from. And we can see Lady out in the backyard framed kind of in the light from that window. And it's just really beautiful imagery. They're actually kind of faking lighting in there in a much more complex, like really great looking way than a lot of the, more so than in a lot of their previous features, I think. Maybe it's just that prior to this are two uh, feature films with a much more abstract and really stylized, colorful background art, which is also great. Yeah. But going from that into this, there's just so much subtle detail in the background paintings and everything that just really stands out. And the widescreen, I'm sure, helps a great deal yeah. with that as well. That's something we haven't actually mentioned yet. Uh, have you been watching the uh, films up to this point with Disney View on? I haven't. I watched in the original, like, 4.3. Gotcha. If you got the Blu-rays, it gives you usually gives you the option when you're starting up... Uh, it, just imagine, rather than watching it as a square, they put these kind of like, almost like 
theatrical curtains on either side with beautiful painted backgrounds that accentuate rather than distract from what you're watching. It's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful way of allowing your eyes to relax into what you're seeing without being overly aware that it's a square. Interesting. I'll try that on one of these. Uh, and then they change free, depending on what you're watching. They've, they've been carefully arranged. So there's a good like, 15, 20 different backgrounds per film, uh, mm-hmm. and it changes depending on the setting. So like if, if you're watching Pinocchio, it'll change to sort of a, a ragged, uh, moth-eaten the circus tent for the Stromboli scenes. But, um, but yeah, this is, this is a sumptuous film. And it's good that it's sumptuous because it's a, it's a lovely, charming, and fairly boring film about dogs. It's, it is <laughs> Sorry a very... to be damning of this, but <laughs> yeah. it, it is a lovely, charming film about dogs. It is very sweet. I think it narrowly avoids crossing the line into full-on saccharine territory, probably just because of the scarier elements of the story yeah. that do happen. Like the, the rat that might kill a baby is pretty Yeah, the, the whole sequence in the pound has a really kind of mm. dire, sort of ominous feel. At the whole uh, trustee's wagon chase at the end is yeah. actually really moving and like uh and at high stakes they drop the ball on that actually and this is a slight retconning of what i said on the uh the bambi thing they were going to kill trusty here and uh one of the uh mothers being consulted said oh no it'll upset the children and i realized what a big achievement bambi's mother dying at all is and i know i went on and on and on about it in that first episode but put it like this it really doesn't happen that often in Disney's where they actually straight out kill one of the characters. And for it to be a character who's not a parent or a, 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 a family member, but actually um, a, a friend, someone who's actually going out of their way to, to put their own life in danger, uh, is a huge deal. And they could have done it in this. But be, even though they didn't, because they did it once in Bambi, that left you on edge every single subsequent Disney film. Now, obviously, I wasn't there, but I can imagine for audiences, they play with you with deer. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a deer in um, uh, the Sword in the Stone that's about to get shot by Kay. Yeah. And there's a deer in, what was the other one? It's another one we've seen recently. Oh, Jungle Sleeping Book. Sheer Ka- Sheer Khan stalking um, the deer in, uh, in, in Jungle Book. You're like, oh, don't kill the deer. And it gets scared away. So it's, it's like they're teasing you, going, ah, ah, we could do this at any point. They've got their finger on the trigger to kill any of our beloved Disney characters. And it's not until some of the sort of the 90s ones that they start really going back to that again and going, you know what? Some people can die as part of the dramatic turns in the story. But it is actually admirable that they killed Bambi's mother, even if they didn't really examine it in a psychological sense, because it's, it's, a, it's a very traumatic moment, and it, it, they didn't shy away from upsetting the kids. And Lady and the Tramp just goes to show exactly what kind of lovely, ineffectual story can come when you don't do that. I don't know. I feel like you still get the power of the moments of a character sacrificing himself, even if it does turn out that the character does... Make yeah, it through. Jungle. Like I don't. I don't think Trusty needs to die for this story to work. <laughs> I'm not saying I want the dog to die. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Well, no. Obviously, I'm just thinking. Like, and I, I know. I do know what you mean. That like actually having a character killed off, there is a permanence to that, and it's something that in stories, especially in kids' stories, mm. that a company like Disney can and it's be very worried well, about the idea doing. Being that if if Trusty dies, the old guard dying to protect the young. He's gotten a big, mo- like that is his big glory moment. That chase, like you, yeah, seeing yeah. him get to. He's tracking something when you when everyone no one had faith that he could actually do that anymore. Yeah. He actually is the hero. He saves the day, and he basically 
he would have sacrificed himself and it very could easily could have died and you for a while you think he might have and it it almost feels like disney's kind of doing it again yeah. like the fact that like he's he looks dead jock is mournful and then they cut to a sweet little christmas thing all of a sudden just That's... like they cut to the little springtime like song yeah. and it's just like they're doing it again they killed him and then they're going to something sweet yeah. it's it's i'm sure it wasn't actually intentional but it feels almost like a. I don't oh, know. We're doing, I think we're doing it to almost, you again. When you get to animation and, and every frame takes forty days to actually get done, um, true. You'd, you'd imagine that they'd be like, "Hang on a second, looking at this, it's a bit like Bambi." But uh, it, it, it could just be that the, the scene that follows it is so mind-bendingly cute. It's like <laughs> all the girls look like Lady, and the one boy looks like Tramp. <laughs> Sharon says along the lines of they'd all look the same, they'd look like scruffy mongols and they'd be worthless. <laughs> <laughs> you almost said it like Cruella de Vil. Oh, they're know. mongols, Anita. But, no you know. spots at all. Um, okay, what do you think about Lady in the Tramp Show? Um, I think it's, it's a bit of an unusual thing to say, but what I like most about it um, is the vocal work. Mm, mm. I actually yeah. think the the performances in this are fantastic, and they've got um, Peggy Lee doing Peg and the uh, the cats, and they've and the the woman who does Lady's voice. Um, she she manages to go from a, a sweet little puppy through the various stages of of Lady's life and experience to being a mother, mm. um, and gives each. Um, each phase, if you like, a slightly different inter- – I mean, it's not wildly different, but a slightly different intonation so you mm. can kind of see her, her progression. Barbara Luddy um, is her name. She also voices Merriweather in Sleeping Beauty. Oh, yes, of course she did. She's got she? that wonderful kind of it's, – it's almost like this soft voice that you just – you don't want her to ever be hurt or upset. Mm. Yeah, which so, works perfectly for a sweet little puppy that you yeah. don't want to – be hurt or upset they don't really pull their punches with that at the beginning either it's very like you know this is a dog film but she's gonna keep you up at night and she's gonna cry and she's gonna be annoying and it's like there's no she's disney... gonna wee on your carpet yeah there's no disney cat film that actually portrays cats being like they are apart from like from a cat lover's point of view the aristocats are little kids basically they're not really yeah. cats at all in the way that lady's most definitely a dog when she's a puppy um, but obviously this is a cat haters film because the Siamese cats are not <laughs> <laughs> exemplary of the breed. Also, shockingly racist. Just like, come on. I had to teach Lyra about racism because of these cats. Cheers, Disney. We are Siamese, if you please. We are Siamese, if you don't please. Now we're looking over our new domicile. If we like, we stay for maybe quite a while. And that was that was Peggy Lee, the not at all Asian lady, doing uh, uh, these like. I mean, this was made. Um, when was Breakfast at Tiffany's? 
This was made six years before Mickey Rooney, God rest his soul, did his horrible racist Mr. Unioshi Japanese man routine in Breakfast at Tiffany's. My God. Um, But that's just basically what America was like in those days. Same as with the Native Americans. They were just that fucking ignorant. You can just see the thought process. If there is no awareness that anyone would have any problem with it at all, yeah. then, well, what do we have? We've got cats. Oh, they're Siamese cats. Hey, we could make, we could make that a thing. And yeah. that's, that's the extent of the thought process. Yeah. Is, all right, we're doing it. They're not thinking, and, hang on, hang on. Would, it, would any Chinese people watching this or Asians in general go, hang on a bit? Nah, who cares? There's not, they didn't even stop and ask themselves that because it just wasn't done in those days. They just did what they felt would be amusing. Yeah, it really would not have felt terribly out of place at this time. But now, it doesn't really feel cruel. I mean, the, the what makes a red man red thing doesn't feel cruel. They're not making it really at the expense of the Native Americans. They're just trivializing something that's actually pretty kind of a serious thing. Yeah, and that and that one is a bit more pro, like offensive because it is actually trivializing the people themselves. This is like with these these cats aren't assholes because they're Siamese. They're assholes because they're cats. <laughs> <laughs> And this is obviously a dog dog movie. The yeah. only reason they've got an dog accent lovers. is because they are Siamese cats and get it. <laughs> so like it's yeah it's oh yeah and of course they're Siamese twin. Cats. Of course. Yeah. Oh, you didn't get that? No. <laughs> yeah. But I mean they're, they're they're great. They're great fun to watch. They're little like they're they're vicious little going after the fish and just make, making life hell for for lady in general. I just wish that could have been a big old chunk of the film. Frankly, that would have been good. But then she, they go off with the whole beaver thing going on. But the Bella Notta thing, as much as this is just a dog film about dogs doing dog things, it's so lovely and charming. The whole really Italian is. meal, even with the, hey, I'm Italian stereotypes, straight off of the pizza box. Um, yeah, but holy cow, that guy's voice is awesome. Yes. I, I would listen to anything from that voice. Yeah. But. It could be that I'm more attached to this scene because of Hot Shots part, dear. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, there's a uh, it, it's it's a lovely bit with the, the nudging the meatball forwards with the nose and um, on paper, two dogs fall in love while eating spaghetti sounds like a mess, literally. But um, <laughs> and Walt thought the same thing too. He was yeah. not he did not have a lot of faith in this scene until I. It was either Frank Thomas or Ollie Johnson, I forget which, who like, fought for it and said, all right, I'm doing this myself. And he yeah. did it himself and proved that, yeah, this would this could be great. Speaking of the animation, actually, like by by this point, the Disney animation team, like they'd always been pretty much the best in the business. By this point, they are all basically masters. Mm-hmm. Like they it's not to, like I don't want to say they don't get better from here, but they really have hit almost like the peak. And from here, it's just like they keep on making some small little improvements here and there. But they're just uh, it's at the point where, like, especially watching some of Tramp's animation in this, I almost start getting angry. (laughs) Just just looking at it as an animator, just because it. Like, I do this professionally and I look at that in my it just blows my mind how good it is. And they're doing it with pencil and paper. And (laughs) it's. It's frustrating. It's and I, then again, I'm sure the other uh, Milt Call was the animator who did Tramp's animation for the most part. And even yeah. among the nine old men, he was like the. I think they probably got angry looking at his stuff too. Yeah. Oh, uh, one of the uh, animators on the one of the um, docs that I'll be watching earlier today said, "I have been through the archives looking for a bad drawing from Milt Call. Doesn't exist. 
Yeah, he was. He must have screwed them up and thrown them away. He was an incredible draftsman. There was another, again, I can't remember if it was Frank Thomas or Ellie Johnson, who was paired with him a lot of the time on a lot of these features and working closely with him. And he always felt very self-conscious about his own draftsmanship. He didn't think he was a very good, he didn't think he was very good at drawing. You look at his drawings, they're incredible. It's that he was sitting next to Milt Call all the time. Yeah. And that anyone would feel inferior just next to that. Like, it's infuriating. He's so good. But look at how many years they had to get good, Dan. When you're 80, I'm sure yours were. They were called old men. You've got to wait till you're old, Dan. The, then you'll be really good. There are maybe five animators who have lived since, who have worked in this business since then, who I would say are on that level. This guy was incredible. I love <laughs> Even in Disney. enthusiasm about this stuff. Uh, even in Disney, like there are a few, I think, I think Glenn Keane is just is on his level. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a handful of the other kind of the nine new men unofficially, whatever they're, whatever they're called, kind of in that, that uh, 90s era. But holy cow, he's good. Sorry to keep going back to it. Uh, Tangled, who animated Rapunzel? Uh, Glenn Keane actually was the directing, an- he didn't actually animate animate um, <laughs> because he was a 2D animator, but he was the directing animator and he worked very very hard to try to make like help the 3d animators make their 3d animation look like 2d does yeah which is a very very hard thing to do absolutely but like it ended in it resulted in some of the most appealing 3d animated characters i think i've ever seen visually Mm -hmm. like it it absolutely paid off and it it's a testament to how good he is basically every day you know, I'm going to talk about Tangled later. We'll I'll yeah, talk about no, it. Yeah, we will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I did, that is, a, for me, an example of, of perfection in, in yeah. terms of animation. It's it's just wonderful. And so th- this is why I feel like I, I'm not dwelling in the past. I love looking to the future and seeing the, the things that develop every few years and just the little leaps that move forwards. And I, I'm, I'm, I love being optimistic about that stuff. I hate feeling like um, the future is in the hands of incompetence or the hands of people who don't know what the hell they're doing. So yeah, whenever we go through a, a rough patch of Disney, I get, uh, you know, it, it, years of anxiety because it's like, well, what are you doing to this company? We'll come to that later. Um, but yeah, before we leave Lady and the Tramp, Peg, uh, one of the absolute standouts for me, you know, some, some proper true attitude in a film that's otherwise very, uh, very twee and very cute. She's got like a sway and a swagger and she's, she's a sexy dog, let's face it. And yet at the same time, they've not made her like a perfect dog either. She's not like a, a, like a, a, a show dog or a pedigree. She's got these great big square gappy teeth. And, uh, you know, she's, she's been around the dog block. Uh, but so it gives her much more character. What a dog. He's a tramp, but they love him. Breaks a new heart every day. He's a tramp, they adore him. And I only hope he'll stay that way. He's a tramp, he's a scoundrel, he's a rounder. He's a cab He's a tramp But I love him Yes, even I have got it pretty bad You can never tell When he'll show up He gives you plenty of trouble 
I guess he's just a no-count pup But I wish that he were double He's a tramp He's a rover And there's nothing more to say If he's a tramp He's a good one And I wish that I could travel his way Wish that I could travel his way Wish that I could travel his way Anymore on Lady and the Tramp? Any, anything bad about Lady and the Tramp that you can think of? I mean, it is a much smaller story in terms of scale, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the characters are all endearing enough to carry it through. It can be a little slow. Honestly, a lot of Disney films around this era were not, like, their plot was not what was carrying them through. No. It was really all pure character and charm and some great songs and just some beautiful-looking stuff. It really wasn't until later that you really got into some more like plot driven stuff but uh yeah the other thing that's important to note that there is a reason why we're doing a disney series of podcasts up until the 90s really i mean there was almost nothing there was occasional films came out like don bluth had a good go at it um that uh outside of japan american animation studios just didn't happen they didn't take off. They, they didn't succeed anywhere near the way that Disney did. It was a very tough game, and Disney were barely able to stay afloat on what they'd already made and what they'd already sunk into, into it. It took uh, DreamWorks stepping up to the plate uh, following Pixar, who were already part of Disney, to, to really change the scene. And then Fox followed on from that. So basically, the 20th century belonged to Disney. Any, I mean, to Al Pacino. No, that was just when he was the devil. Oh. <laughs> that was fictional. Uh, Dan, am I wrong on this? Because you know, I don't know what I want to. There's been enough hyperbole in um, in all these Disney docs and stuff, but I, I, I don't want to say anything that's actually not straightforward true. But I can't think of any other studio that really managed to make a go of it. I mean, there were other animation studios around doing tons of TV and tons of uh, yeah. Commercial work, obviously. Ralph like actually uh, had a go. Oh, like Warner Brothers. Like Warner Brothers had a pretty su- great successful run of their Looney Tunes shorts. Oh, uh, yeah, no, sorry. Shorts, yes. Animation, TV, oh, yeah. yes. Like, I'm if, talking if about go, fully, fully like, features, animated features. No, Disney was pretty much the game in town. Yeah. From 37 through to what, uh, mid-90s with Pixar and then late-90s with uh, DreamWorks PDI. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, there's things like, actually, like I said, Don Bluth's American Tale and a couple of, like, Old Dogs Go to Heaven, Rockadoodle, and various other things. But these always seem to be sort of like, it felt like they were trying to horn in on Disney's territory. And especially, they came out at around about the time when Disney were floundering. No pun intended. <laughs> Just prior to the aptly named Flounder. Um, so they almost, they could actually have knocked Disney down had they not made some clever decisions at that point. Yeah, Bluth had a pretty good go of it. He got... How many films total? Like at least five. He got at least five good films out, which is pretty. Which is a pretty good run, especially considering no one else had really managed to make yeah high profile other that probably that many high profile animated features aside from Disney up to that point. We'll talk about that when we come to the the Rocky uh, yeah third, third fourth fourth phase yeah fourth phase because if you count the, the wartime ones as the second phase. But both, I mean, both Peter Pan and Lady and the Tramp had been quite commercially successful, though. Yeah, so like, relative uh, to Alice in Wonderland. 
Yeah, like uh, Peter Pan, I think, was the most commercially successful of its year. and uh, People didn't mind the racism. They positively relished it. (laughs) (laughs) Big thumbs up from the American public. But but, yeah, and Lady and the Tramp also, another, another big hit. So Disney was really coming back in a pretty big way. Next up, we have Sleeping Beauty. Listen out for the magnificent soundtrack, which is the ballet by Tchaikovsky, centered around this very fairy tale. Sleeping Beauty, sparkling with colorful spectacle, brimming with gay music and delightful new songs, filled with fascinating new Disney characters. I wonder, I wonder. You'll meet lovely Princess Briar Rose. Prince Philip and Samson, his noble steed. You'll meet the most delightful fairies who ever wafted a magic wand. Flora. Follow me. Fauna. And Merryweather. 
you'll share the fun with King Stephen and King Hubert. <laughs> You'll see Maleficent work her wondrous witchcraft. Stand back, you fools! The fine art of animation becomes magnificent entertainment as Walt Disney brings one of the world's favorite stories to the screen. It's filled with magical fun. It's spectacular in its beauty, and there's adventure to excite every emotion. The management of this theater is proud to recommend this magnificent motion picture to every member of every family everywhere. Right, now the Cinderella music's stuck in my head. <laughs> Sorry to, to lay into Peter Pan so much, especially since we seem to be on opposite sides of this one. It's, I suppose it, it reminds me of like trying to go back to the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings once you've seen the Fellowship of the Ring. It's yeah, just no, it, so it, hard. It, all you see is what they got wrong. Yeah, and I, and I don't blame you. Like I feel similarly about that. It makes it much harder for me to uh, enjoy it as much as I would otherwise. I generally, and it's super hard to do so I know I'm not always successful I generally try to be like kind of approaching them on their own merits just like because I know like not yeah. only with the Ralph Bakshi ones like obviously I love the Peter Jackson ones way more than I love the Ralph Bakshi stuff and the and the earlier Lord of the Rings animated stuff but for what it was at its time like I I kind of like and I, I don't fault it for not being Peter Jackson's thing Oh, no, no, no. that's not, no, that's not my point. I, I always found it tedious and annoying, but just that that was ramped up to 11 once I'd seen the 03 version. It was like, wow, this is actually how it could be done. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really hard not to, when you know how well, like when you can see an example of how it could be great yeah. right there, it is, it's harder, like it's easy to forget that at the time, like when you don't have that example of how it could be great right there already to fall, like without that example to follow in place. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's difficult to keep that context in mind. Okay, so the next one, Sleeping Beauty, 1959. This was Disney's attempt to go all out with the ink and paint. This was also, though they didn't know it at the time, the last hurrah for ink and paint. This cost a phenomenal amount of money for them to make, $6 million, which was way more than they were prepared to spend. And um, it was all to make it look as absolutely sumptuous as they possibly could. And um, I've heard uh, in the, uh, the the making of docs, they're talking about how every single frame of this film, if you just took it as a still, you could put it on a wall because it's just that beautiful. And that's not hyperbole. That's actually true. It really is. It's striking. It's evocative. It's so sumptuous. Uh, Dan, do you want to talk about this one? Uh, sure. I mean, like you said, Disney was wanting to make this he wanted to make Sleeping Beauty his studio's masterpiece because he'd built up over the decades this incredible animated film creating machine and he wanted to like he wanted to show like we're on top of the world right now we've got we've been making lots of money with these things let us make the best thing we are capable of making yeah and to spare no expense whatsoever and he I mean at the time Disneyland was being built he 
uh, he even went so far as to create a Sleeping Beauty attraction there to tie in with the film's release. Yeah, he was he was going all in on this movie. Well, he built the castle. This is norm. That that's yeah. the Disney logo. That's this castle. Yeah, and the, yeah, like the background paintings are so much more complex and full of detail, and most of them painted by one guy. <laughs> And yeah, this is the guy who uh, went to Europe and, and to uh, the tapestries that we have there and just brought that back with him. Yeah, and the character animation on display is excellent. The designs of the characters are a bit more difficult to animate within. As Who was this was, one guy? Sorry, we can't not credit him at this point. Is it Clyde Geronomi yeah, like, or Les Clark? No, was, Eric no, Larson? Wolfgang Ratherman? It's no, not I mean, those are all the animators. Up, yeah. It was okay. it was a uh, it was the painter, and I, yeah, we do need to credit this guy because the look is basically entirely credited to him. In the same way that uh, Bill Pete did, like just made 101 Dalmatians. Even to Earl, yeah, oh, Earl, Earl also painted a majority of the backgrounds himself. Yep, Evan Earl. Yep, yeah, he just did an incredible amount of beautiful, beautiful work with a really, really cool art design in general. Just a very geometrical shapes, but it's, yeah, just the backgrounds are kind of simplified into geometrical shapes, but they are still so much rich detail mm. layered into every tree and every bush, and it's just very beautiful. And, and you really it gives a depth it. to the screen as well. It really does, and because the character designs are in a lot of previous uh, Disney films, the characters can sometimes feel a little bit separate from the backgrounds uh, yeah. so in some more than others. Mary because, Blair's backgrounds don't fit with the rounded characters that got stuck on them. Like say Johnny Appleseed, they use this as an example. In yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. Which is just, which is just, I mean, you're designing characters to be like easy to animate and you're not really necessarily paying as much attention to colors going together with the backgrounds as, as, uh, as they were with this one. So they really tried to, make the character design the characters to fit in with this background perfectly and even down to i think they were they were spending a lot longer on individual drawings especially of uh of aurora and the prince i think i suspect they were even really getting nitpicky about line width on just the individual lines created for them Mm -hmm. i think they were animating a lot of this on ones, which is to say they were animating a lot of it every single frame rather than every other frame as you often do with 2D animation. Yeah. Just a staggering amount of work. When people talk about how there's never going to be another film made like this again, it's kind of like looking at like maybe a huge ornate tapestry all done by hand or some sort of piece of art that is painstakingly created in a way that people would not do anymore and that people will never probably do anymore. Again, the Lord of the Rings comes up because the modern day equivalent of the Lord of the Rings is the Hobbit, and they're doing so much more with Word of Digital now than they did back then in the day. They they don't even do bigatures anymore. So it comes down to the fact that the the production process is different, not specifically the end result, but the, yeah, as you say, the the actual, the way they get there, the the travel that is involved with it. It, it It doesn't even make good business sense to do this. This was the second highest grossing film of 1959, made 21 million for the 6 million that it was required. It's made 51 million all told since then. And it was still not enough for what they needed. Yeah, it really was just, and it, it was a huge gamble in the first place and just impractical really to make a film this expensive and expect it to 
and expect it to succeed. I, I suspect Disney was trying to really was hoping to really kind of nail that Snow White success again with this. Yeah. Or at least hoping. I don't know if it was just wishful thinking or what, but uh Well Ben Hur, uh, which was the number one grossing film of that year, Charlton Heston, uh thirty six million that made versus their twenty one million. But that cost fifteen million. So it cost three times as much as uh, Sleeping Beauty. No, no, just under three times as much. So it's uh, for what they put into it, the hours, it's still pound for pound more profitable than the best that they possibly could have hoped for. Yeah. And the Tchaikovsky Symphony inspired score mm. is also really different for a, a Disney film. Like, other, I guess Fantasia is the closest thing you can find to it, but it really yeah. does lend it a unique feel and a just a kind of richness. Well, the whole thing plays out as a ballet. Ultimately. It really kind of, you, you yeah, it really does. The opera. It, so what, I really do appreciate the artistry on display. I mean, it's, it's not my favorite looking film, even despite all, uh, despite all of this, it, but I really do appreciate just the process and the craft just playing out before me. Sharon? Um, I was just going to ask, where does this um, uh, financially problematic situation come from then? If it, if it did make money in terms of what the investment in this actual film was, is it to do with the fact that they were trying to recoup uh, losses from previous films? Uh, I mean, the last few films have been doing quite well for them. Maybe I just sp- because that they were making the park as well, and that must have cost them a pretty penny. Uh, yeah, just everything was factored in financially that year, and it was like we've got right. to make this much with Sleeping Beauty, and if we don't, then we're under budget on this. Yeah, Disney as a company was really quite diverse by this point, and yeah. Walt would have been getting pulled in a lot of different directions as well. They were making live action films. They were making it's huge theme parks, which Walt would have been heavily it's investing a lot of time in. Uh, Disney as a company was growing pretty large and doing a lot of different things at this point, and. Yeah. It was that old capital which needed to be recouped for the movies. And animation's an expensive thing to do, and it was as much expense as required. It required to be poured into it. It did not always pay out terribly well. Yeah, it it, it was. Yeah, it wasn't. It was kind of proving to not be an easy thing to do and make a profit at. But I mean, Walt was. I mean, Walt built that company on animation, so he was going to fight to keep it going as much as he possibly could. And I'm sure that's the only reason they kept on making films up to this point and beyond is because Walt would just really love this stuff. And this was very much the style that he was dedicated to as well, wasn't it? This incredible craftsmanship going into meticulously drawn and, and inked um, Definitely. Work. Yeah, he, he really just... He wanted to make this film the absolute best thing that his studio was capable of. And these are the, some of the best artists doing this in the world. He, he just wanted this to be the masterpiece. And it is incredibly beautiful, I have to say. It, it really is. It, it's summed up repeatedly as, as being something that you can take each individual frame and, that, and frame it and hang it on the wall. And that's a painting. I've just been checking to see whether I was right there and whether Sleeping Beauty's castle was the one at, at Disneyland. It was. Uh, Cinderella's castle is also at the at two theme parks. Uh, the Magic Kingdom at the Walt Disney World Florida, of course. So Cinderella in Florida, Sleeping Beauty in, in L.A. and Tokyo Disneyland as well. So uh, they both look pretty similar. But the, the this castle... From the two of them, is so emblematic of Disney. So, I mean, it, it, 
you it's almost as famous as Mickey, maybe more. Maybe more today now, actually, now that I think about it. Actually, yeah, probably. You will see some logo form of this castle yeah. all over the place. And it, it just sums up absolutely. Whenever Disney is in crisis, whenever Disney thinks, what the hell do we do now? How do we come back from this princess castle? And obviously we'll talk about this when it, we, we do our princess show. But my God, it works. It really does. Every single one of the times that they've gone right, let's do a princess and a castle, they just capture the world again. It may not be my favorite films. We give them monkeys about Cinderella, frankly, but they grab the public's attention. Even Frozen, which subverts the princess story they've been doing for years, 1.1 billion at the moment. That's how much they've captivated the public. There's a lot to like. There's a lot of other elements of the film that I like a lot too. Like yeah. the three fairies are adorable, especially Meriwether. Yeah, and I, I feel like I should have mentioned Verna Felton before, but her voice as the fairy godmother. Mm-hmm. As, oh yes, uh, she's the also the hearts. She's the elephant, the, the meanest matriarch elephant in Dumbo as well. <laughs> yeah, she's she's kind of like Sterling Holloway in that she's just one of those voices that pops up in seemingly every other Disney production. Yeah, but you are always happy to hear them. Eleanor Audley as well comes back from being the uh, the wicked stepmother as Maleficent even more like this combines the wicked queen from Snow White and the uh, wicked stepmother into this epitome of wickedness on the whole though the movie's actually kind of dull oh yeah <laughs> it's dull and it's shallow and as much as we've said it, it's it's the same equivalent of the, uh, the, the the doggy stuff I suppose they attach a lot more drama to it this whole the, the, the girl's gonna die Aurora says 18 lines in the film the the crucial element of her dance in the forest with that owl it's the owl again um, and uh, and you know meeting the prince that's who Aurora is and that's key because after that she's asleep <laughs> and yet she's like one of the flagship Disney princesses what the fuck does she do she's in all of like 15 minutes of the movie yeah she's she's MacGuffin she's not actually a character she's, she's just what certainly drives isn't the plot. the main she certainly isn't the main character of the film yeah. like I mean I'd say the fairies are yeah but yeah I guess that's the I guess that's the difference like in Lady of the Tramp at least you've got a lot of characters that you can care about and that are appealing and a lot charming. Of interplay, yeah. And, yeah, and lots of great interplay. And in this you have a few characters who are great. You've got the fairies, Maleficent's pretty awesome, and probably a handful of other little side characters here and there. But in terms of our main uh, theoretically our hero characters, uh the Prince and Aurora, we're kind of right back to Snow White territory with just a whole lot of nothing and less honestly in, in Aurora's case yeah the prince actually actually he has a name and some personality Philip for has some stuff to do as opposed to charming 
Right. He's got oh, but, a dragon to beat. I love the fact... I, I think some of the best stuff that Philip has to do, he doesn't even actually do it. It's just in this dream sequence, that uh, the future sequence, that when Maleficent's... Um, it kind of references the fact that it's going to go on for 100 years. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I know. You're, this spell shall break. I'm going to let you go. But it's going to be in 100 years' time, and you're going to be a walking corpse. And she gloats over this. But at the same time, what the words she's delivering sound grandiose. That's one of my favorite bits of the film. She is just malice right there. I don't know about you, Dan, but I'd kind of like to find out more about Maleficent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come now, Prince Philip. Why some melancholy? A wondrous future lies before you. You, the destined hero of a charming fairy tale come true. Behold, King Stefan's castle. And in yonder topmost tower, dreaming of her true love, the Princess Aurora. But see the gracious whim of fate. Why, tis the self-same peasant maid who won the heart of our noble prince but yesterday. She is indeed most wondrous fair. Gold of sunshine in her hair. Lips that shame the red, red rose. In ageless sleep she finds repose. The years roll by, but a hundred years to a steadfast heart are but a day. And now the gates of the dungeon part, and our prince is free to go his way. Off he rides on his noble steed, a valiant figure, straight and tall, to wake his love with love's first kiss. And prove that true love conquers all. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, yeah. Phil, Philip's got some stuff to do, and uh, again, the dragon is kind of an achievement. But then we've just seen Smaug, so mm. yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's just not. It's just a dull kind of. It's a dull movie. It's big and beautiful and boring, and which is a shame. It, it, yeah, that's probably a good way of putting it. It's 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 a. I, I suppose it can captivate people's hearts and ears and um, and their eyes, and it's 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 enchanting to look at and to think about, but it's not exactly engaging. Yeah, that really is it. And it certainly doesn't engage your brain, my God. And this was around the time working on this film that even Disney himself was getting pretty worried that animation was just going to be too expensive to continue producing yeah. unless something changed pretty significantly and something this, did and he didn't like it he didn't no i mean i'm sure he didn't like to have i'm sure he didn't like having to do it yeah. like it's just kind of a reality of the, keeping this business going yeah. sleeping beauty basically kicks off a long era of uncertainty for the long-term future of disney animation from he, from this film onward there's always that lingering question being posed by certain people inside and outside the company of should disney keep should Disney keep making these things? If it had made twice as much as it did, if it had made like $100 million, somehow paid off all of Disney's debts, allowed them to push forward with many more projects, how different do you think the years after that would be with maintaining income paint? Looking at 
the trend as it was going, I think this breaking point was going to get hit at some point or other. Uh, well, eventually. we were entering the 60s when the innocence... This, this was a different world. They had to change themselves, actually. Sorry, sorry, Dan, I'm answering my own bloody question. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's just, well, just in terms of production, like, these films were getting really more and more expensive to make. It's just as they got better at it and making more and uh, the craft of it. And it was just looking at the trend going backward. They about every other one roughly is successful and every other and every other one is not. Yeah. It, it doesn't alternate evenly, but and there's about no perfect uh, form for it either. It's not just dogs will be successful. Princesses won't or, the, or vice versa. Right. It's really an unpredictable sort of business. And putting that kind of crazy money into something that's really unpredictable. Like something was going to have to change in the way they produced these things to make them more like, uh, to make them more viable as an actual business prospect. Yeah. I think they probably would have found that, um, uh, demand would have, uh, added its pressure on as well because finances aside, this style of animation was so slow. It mm. took so long to put these films together. And as cinema is becoming more and more popular and more and more widespread, the demand for more animated films yeah. to put out, I think, would have just overtaken them. Even if they could have carried on affording to do it that way, I, it just, I don't think the speed would have been able to keep up with them. It took four years between Tramp and Beauty. You mentioned the nine old men before. Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnston, Milt Carl, uh, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John Lansbury, and Wolfgang Ratherman, and Frank Thomas. From the words of a hard-working animator and animation enthusiast, who were the nine old men? These were basically guys that had joined the studio. Maybe one or two of them had been around for Snow White, but a lot of them came in in the uh, years that followed it, and after Snow White had been a big success. And they basically came in and built up the elevated the craft of animation mm. to entire new levels. They were very talented guys to begin with, and they were given an opportunity and the budget and the faith in them from from Walt. Walt basically wanted them to take this medium further than it had ever been. It, as he had been doing with Snow White, he'd been wanting to elevate what animation looked like and what it could be. And these guys did it. They were just masters at this craft of animation. And they all had their different strengths and their different, uh, I mean, as all animators do. Like uh, Milt Call, this incredible draftsman. Uh, Ward Kimball, I believe, it's like great with doing really animated, caricatured, kind of cartoony, uh, sort of goofy characters. Like he, he'd be the, I believe he's the, guy who'd be given characters like the Cheshire Cat and the uh, Crocodile and Peter Pan and stuff like that. And uh, and yeah, and they just were just these titans in, in the animation field. Just incredible artists, great storytellers, pretty great actors as well as you kind of have to develop that skill as an animator. Mm. You just you deploy it in a completely different way. And yeah, just a bunch of amazing artists. Just It's kind of a dream team of talent that Walt had gathered and cultivated into just an incredible crew. And they lasted all the way up to like rescuers era. Yeah, I believe well, so. Uh, not all of them, obviously, but, uh, but the, the last one, I think bowed out around then. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I think that is around the time that Frank Thomas was on Rescuers. I think Milt Call still was too. Mm. But yeah, that's so, interesting. I'll still check and see which one is the last one that had one of the nine old men on it. We well, yeah, more on that soon. <clears throat> oh yeah, more on the there's lost. Plenty, there's plenty of time to get bummed out about where Disney goes. Yeah, we're still the, going strong at the moment, so let's get oh, back yeah. on the track. Oh, before we move on. A bit of practicality struck me during the Sleeping Beauty thing, and it's a fairy tale, I know, but let's apply a bit of crazy practicality here, shall we? Why were King Stefan and company, like, all getting ready to, like, with the, the setting the fireworks off already in celebration of Aurora coming home, with apparently no connection or communication with the fairies in 16 years, which, by the way, goes by like that, and it doesn't feel like anything's changed or anyone's gotten any older apart from Aurora and Philip, and it reminded me of Fable, you know, when you basically, it's like, oh, you're aging, but you're aging really rapidly and everyone else is staying the same age, so actually it feels like you got a wasting disease. And then, but in Fable, you actually get really old and everyone stays the same age. So there's no communication between them at all. The plan is um, that she, Aurora is going to prick her finger on a spindle and die. That becomes the new plan after, you can't change the prophecy. You, he burns all the spinning wheels even though it's kind of an accepted thing. And then it's just like, well, we burned all the spinning wheels, let's just hope everything happens great, and then we'll put some fireworks off. Then when things don't go peachy, and of course it does bloody happen, despite the fact that they should have bloody well provided for that anyway, because that's how prophecies work in fairy tales. It's actually really clever the way Merryweather goes, right, we'll just add a caveat to that, which will allow us to get out of it. And then Maleficent later goes, we'll just add a caveat to the caveat, shall we, with the whole, oh, it'll happen, but in a hundred years. The fairies decide, in their infinite wisdom, to put the entirety of the kingdom to sleep, in parallel with Aurora. Why? She's just a princess. You know, they'll be really disappointed, but ultimately, would it not make the most sense to just let the curse carry through, let true love turn up and kiss her. I'm assuming this kingdom has some sort of industry that they trade with other kingdoms. If they drop off the map for as long as it takes to actually wake this princess up, they will be, well, basically another kingdom would just come in and take over because everyone's asleep. I'm applying Game of Thrones logic to Sleeping Beauty here, but it just doesn't make any sense. It is a weird decision. It does kind of smack of that all right, we failed. We can either face the music and admit this, or we can burn the house down. <laughs> or just go look. <laughs> Let's just put everyone to sleep. That's like cursing everyone. And also, it's because there was the whole hundred years thing in the thorn bushes, and they had to circumvent that so that this prince was so. Like, because originally, like, the prince came along and he was not the person in the creepy arranged marriage. Let's remember at the beginning, like, this guy goes to the cradle of Aurora and his dad elbows him and goes, ah, see that? You'll be in her soon. And uh, that is the grossest (laughs) fucking thing. They started it. They started it. Okay. (laughs) Young lad looking at his baby bride. Fucking creepy. Sorry, Disney. But there you go. I have to admit, speaking of the practicality side of things, it did strike me as how they'd... Right. Maleficent says that this will happen before the sun sets on her 16th birthday. They've hidden her in this cottage for almost 16 years. For 15 years and 364 days. Wait, 
12 hours. Wait till the sun <laughs> set on her 16th birthday, then take her back to the castle. So little practicality. And I love Sleeping Beauty. It's a beautiful film, but there's not a, not a lick of sensibility in this film. Except no. Merriweather. Merriweather appears to have her head screwed on, but she's too busy going, make it blue, make it pink, make it blue, make it pink, which for some reason Lyra's fixated on. This very much does fall into the category of things that annoy me about, like, with Snow White and with uh, Cinderella, that, that things happen because they have to happen in because order fairy to Because fairy tales. Yeah. yeah. It is very much a because we have fairy an tales end logic. point that we have to get to, and we don't want to have to think too hard about what's going to get us from A to B. See, I love that these exist because the new fairy tales get to subvert these and apply some humanity and real genuine emotional conflict to an otherwise, you know, just dismissed scenario. Oh, it doesn't matter. Just maybe the prince comes along. So, yeah, it is an absolute triumph of animation, uh, but zero on the practicality scale. <laughs> you have made us like an upstart. I've... Well, they set that for, they set that tone from the beginning too. It's like, all right, M- Maleficent has cursed our young daughter to in sixteen years prick her finger on a spinning wheel. Let's burn all of them now and hope no one makes any more of them in the <laughs> following sixteen years. And in the meantime, everybody in this kingdom will go naked or only wear clothes that were made 16 years ago. Again, how is that going to affect the infrastructure of this country? They're suddenly going to need to import all of their clothes. Or Uh, weave them from Hessian. They could go back to knitted wool, maybe. Oh no, because you've got to spin in order to get... This is mental. It is a bit. Yeah. Anyway. But there, there is a lovely kind of the, the dancing in the clouds thing. This is a recurring theme for Disney. It happened in, I believe, Snow, uh, Cinderella. And there's another one as well. The dancing round and round. Oh, it's, it's referenced in Enchanted. Okay, yes. basically the, 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 the dancing in Cinderella is mimicked in this uh, at the end and the sort of dancing round and round. It's as if they're in the clouds. And that's wonderful. And I think I'm overly spiky about this kind of thing because I do love the film for its actual merits. But then when I hear people saying, oh, no, this is just the, the, the quintessential Disney film because every girl wants to be a princess and meet a prince and every prince wants to meet a princess. No, no, no. That's not what they said. Oh, what they said so? it was every girl, uh, every young girl wants to meet a prince mm. and every prince wants to meet a lovely girl. She doesn't even get to be a princess until he's selected her. And she has to be lovely. (laughs) She can't be awkward or annoying, even. I think, as well, I was always going to be hard on this one story-wise because Sleeping Beauty is one of the most um, overt fairy tales about burgeoning sexuality that there is. And to have that inevitably Disney whitewashed... Yeah, she does, you know, you know, it lost a lot of what that story is about. 16 years old, lips that shame the red, red rose, and then she will prick her finger. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't have Freud back in those days. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They didn't need Freud because they had stories like this. And she won't just prick her finger. She'll die because of it. Well, this, yeah, I mean... uh, I'll probably talk more about that when we do the princess episode. Oh, and the other thing is, after the prince kisses her, just watch that that, that classic moment where she opens her eyes and then smiles, that dead-eyed, smiling expression. It's like the Bride of Dracula. (laughs) 
it's it's lovely it's classic it's creepy as all hell because she's not smiling with her eyes she's smiling with her mouth and then she's about to go <laughs> on him bite his head off i do really like and this surprised me actually um the scene where um the fairies are trying to make the cake Mm -hmm. and make the dress even though there's a part of my brain that goes 16 years and they never figured out what the oven was for yes Um, this comes back to the 16 years what the hell were they doing for 16 years what have they been eating grass um but uh, doesn't know how to make clothes doesn't know how to make cakes somehow self-sufficient the house would have burned down after one day <laughs> quite well, no, I assume, I either assume that, that or because... aurora's been doing it all <laughs> well no i assumed this was because they were like each of the fairies was doing something or at least uh uh flora and fauna were doing something that they'd always wanted to do but never actually had like someone else one of the other fairies probably knew how to cook or aurora, aurora did one of the other ones probably knew something about clothes but Fl- but flora wanted to do Surely it Give it to the ones with the specialty. You're like, you're, you're not like, right, we need to uh, uh, design a wedding dress here. Let's give it to thumbs. Oh, no. I wanted to make a wedding from, from dress. Mary Weather's expression, I would guess she's the one who's actually quite good at all of these things. Well, and, or she's, she's at least knows that, well, she at least knows that this is a bad idea. Just like, you can't sew. She's never cooked. <laughs> but the other two are so enthusiastic that she just kind of. As I said, Meriwether's secret hero of this film. That wrong focus of the film should have been all about Meriwether. But I just, there's, there's something incredibly funny to me about that scene where she folds the eggs into the mixture and <laughs> she <laughs> like two eggs in the bowl. And... Okay, the fairy business is probably the highlight of the film, actually, now that we've talked about it. It's, it's, it really is. It's nonsensical, but it's at least lively. It's, it's Sorcerer's Apprentice influenced as well, so it does have that link to Fantasia, which I love. Oh, was it Cinderella or this one where you pointed out that the king, who wants grandchildren, but not because he's like, I must have heirs for the throne, because he just really wants grandchildren so he can s- pretend to be a dog and be ridden around by them. Cinderella. Cinderella, I think. Okay, yeah. That's sweet. That's nice. I actually like that King and I know I'm going back here, but that King and Duke scenes in Cinderella are really entertaining. Like those are fun characters. They're, yeah, they're okay. I suppose they bring back the fun with the minstrel in, in uh, Sleeping Beauty as well. Yeah. I think they were trying to recreate that a little bit with the two kings in this, but the, mm. because they're effectively trying to marry two infants, they just <laughs> come off as really creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. The the the. the King who wants the grandchildren mitigates slightly the sending the nine ring raids after Cinderella. You seize her. <laughs> See, she could be carrying my grandchild. She even hides her. under a tree, and like the the ring raids go by, and she's like, oh, oh, oh. and then like, they're sniffing around the road for her, but they don't. Does she find throw the mushrooms to distract them? No, no. Uh. Come on, bucket, mop, broom. Flora says, clean up the room. And now to make a lovely dress fit to grace a fair princess. Eggs, flour, Just do it like it says here in the book. I'll put on the candles.
Oh, no, not pink. Make it blue. Merry with her. Make it pink. Next week, we begin our month-long Halloween spooktacular, in which we will be covering all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and all the Scream movies, guest-starring Neil Taylor of Gameburst. After that, we're going back to the secret agent antics of James Bond with Skyfall and Spectre. And as with the live-action Cinderella, we actually heartily suggest you watch the new Maleficent movie for an alternate and far more progressive take on the Sleeping Beauty mythos with an astonishing central performance from Angelina Jolie. Speaking of alternate, you like alternate history? You want to read a fantastic new book? Secret Rooms by Alexander Shaw is now out on the Kindle store. And to play us out and prepare us for two weeks of nothing but Freddy Krueger. I know you, I walked with you once upon a dream. I know you, the feel in your eyes are so familiar a gleam. Yet I know it's true that visions are so but if I know you, I know what you'll do You'll love me at once The way you did once upon a Come in.